nearly through all the year-end reserving work, which is great. And also conscious that we're coming towards the end of our first season of Insurance Uncut. It's been an interesting learning experience. I feel like it has taught me a lot about being on the other side. I listen to quite a lot of podcasts and I guess you really obviously focus on the guests and what the guests is saying, but actually a lot of work goes into the kind of prep behind it and getting the episode out the door. It's been really interesting to see how people engage with it as well the sort of comments we've had from listeners and the things that they found helpful. And of course, we'll talk about that a little in a bit more detail in two weeks' time when we do a wrap-up and a retrospective on the season so far. But I guess turning to today's subject, again, this is a subject very close to my heart and something that I've been absolutely busting for us to address on Insurance Uncut, which is behavioural biases, behavioural science, and how that all plays out in the non-life insurance space. Really pleased this week to welcome Zoe Berdeau, who is a qualified actuary and LCP's expert on behavioural risks. She has trained and worked with a range of clients to help them understand and manage groupthink and other behavioural biases. Zoe is also LCP's diversity and inclusion manager, helping to shape LCP's internal DNI strategy, as well as developing relationships with industry and external groups. Welcome to Insurance Uncut, a show all about insurance. Each week, we'll be taking a different topic that impacts the insurance industry and discussing it with our guest. If you work in the general insurance market or have an interest in insurance, this podcast is for you. I'm Charles Cronier. And I'm Jessica Clark. And Insurance Uncut is brought to you by the insurance team at LCP. Find out more at lcp.uk.com. We would love to hear your thoughts on the show or any topic suggestions, so please get in touch to share your ideas and feedback. Let's kick off with this week's episode. So, welcome Zoe. Thanks for having me. I'm really excited to be here. Today, Zoe, we're talking about behavioural biases. It's been a topic that I've definitely heard a lot about over the last few years, but just so we're all on the same playing field. I was wondering if you could just give us a little bit of a background scene setting on what behavioral bias is, what groupthink is, just so we can kind of get everyone on the same page before we dive into the detail. Yeah, absolutely. I guess I'm assuming that a lot of listeners will have heard about these concepts before. I could really sit here for hours and and talk (laughs) about all of the behavioral biases that exist. I sort of geek out on this kind of thing. But I guess what we're really talking about is what kind of influences we have on our decision making. So that's our individual decisions, group decision making dynamics, why sometimes we do things that in hindsight look like they might have been a little bit irrational or nonsensical. I'm sure most people have had that experience of looking back and saying, why didn't we spot this or that at the time? And I think just from an evolutionary perspective, these things were necessary. So we have to often make decisions in the absence of other information. We often don't have detailed information. We need to make quick decisions. And so we rely on our instincts to make those decisions. Why this is so interesting, I think we're talking about insurance or anything in the financial space, is that often those instincts that we have are very survival-esque. They are kind of fight or flight instincts. And we're actually talking about things where we have a lot more information available to us and we kind of take those out of context and they can have really interesting influences on the kind of decisions that we make day to day in this space. Charles, I wonder if maybe, do you want to give us a little scene setting example of how 
behavioral biases might feature in an insurance context and then we could delve into that so zoe i'm particularly interested in exploring the ways in which behavioral biases play out in the insurance world because from the little bit of reading that i've done on behavioral biases it appears that one central theme is that human beings are quite poor at assessing probabilities of events and making rational decisions based on those probabilities. And I suppose the general insurance market is very much characterized by insurance firms having to make lots of probabilistic decisions. What classes of business to write, what assumptions to make in business planning, how to protect against tail risks, all of those things. So they're exactly the sort of thing which behavioral experts tell us we're quite poor at. (laughs) I think that a lot of us will be familiar with the caveat on whether that be investment advice or any kind of analysis of past performance or past experience isn't as indicative of future performance or future experience. And we all know that, but often we really rely on what's happened in the past. And we're not very good at objectively looking at risk, particularly extreme risk. So where there are risks that we don't find easy to imagine. So say the risk of a meteor hitting the earth and that having catastrophic events, or even when you look at the extremes of climate change, when we find it difficult to imagine those scenarios, we find it very difficult to recognize the actual magnitude of those risks. We tend to discount them. Also, anything that's particularly emotional, we just We have these self-protection mechanisms, which mean that we don't really want to think about extreme events or extremely emotional situations. And it does mean that it's really hard for us to objectively measure that risk because in some senses, we sort of bury our heads in the sand a bit. I think climate change is a really interesting example because it not just impacts people from a business perspective, but also it really impacts their personal life. And so the moment you kind of start to really admit and allow for it, in a business perspective, you should also probably be doing the same in your personal life, which could mean making quite significant lifestyle changes. And there's probably a whole complexity there in terms of going down that journey and understanding it more. Absolutely. I think that climate change is a really interesting one when you talk about analysis. We tend to have this kind of false sense of security when we have a lot of data available to us. We think, oh, we're really being objective here. And that's not true. Our biases really do influence all of our analysis and all of our work. And sometimes that can be more pronounced when we have a lot of data because we can use it to show what we want to show in the data that we collect, in the data that we choose to look at, in the results that we choose to focus on. And something like climate change, no one wants to put something forward in a a work context that goes against how they're acting in their everyday life. I think another area which is probably rife with behavioral biases is cyber risk. So within the insurance market, cyber risk has become, for some, a very profitable new line of business, new industry. Clearly, businesses need protection against cyber risk and are often willing to pay quite substantial premiums for that. But at the same time, we have to recognize that it's a poorly understood risk. It keeps morphing. And so insurers' ability to charge the right premium and not take on excessive risk is quite a tricky balance to strike. I don't know if you want to comment on how typical behavioral biases might play in that kind of arena. In general, unknown unknowns are the worst. So the things that we're worst at making decisions about or worst at quantifying 
are things that we're unfamiliar with, things that we can't imagine, things that have a large financial impact. And when you're talking about cyber risk, I think that it ticks all of those boxes, really. We don't know what cyber risk might look like in the future. We know what has already happened. We know examples of cyber risk that has already shown itself. But I think that trying to quantify what that might look like in the future is difficult. And so again, we focus on that past experience. And really, those extreme risks are the worst. We really do kind of hunker down and focus on the kind of few examples that we have and discount the very wide range of ways that that could manifest. So you talk about the unknown unknowns being the kind of hardest area. What about the known unknowns? Maybe are we a bit better at quantifying the risk there? But are there traps that we should watch out for? We should be. (laughs) I don't think we always are. Again, especially when you're talking about really extreme scenarios, it's difficult to really give weight to those edge risks. So things that could be catastrophic, but are still possible. And admitting that to ourselves is really difficult. And so when we model, we do tend to look at 95% probability of occurrence. We look at a range that we can realistically focus on, which in a lot of ways is necessary and appropriate, but it doesn't mean that those tail events can't happen. And so looking at those tail events is really important. We got a guest joining us. Sorry, I knew this would happen. I have two cats who are very vocal. Well, this and- is the first cat that we've had on the podcast. It's fantastic. <laughs> this is Sapphire. She has a toy flamingo that she likes to drag around the house and meow while she does it. So apologies. <laughs> you mentioned the 95% probability and that triggered a thought in my head, which is that insurers, like some other organizations, have got to set regulatory capital at a level at which they believe there's only a 0.5% probability of going insolvent over the next year. And of course, it's very hard for the human brain to properly get around what is a one in 200 probability event. Does that mean that really those sorts of solvency rules are kind of doomed to fail because they're just too hard to conceptualize? I don't think so, because it does need to be proportionate and appropriate we can't spend all of our time focused on tail risks that probably would have a lot wider impact if there was to be an alien invasion or a giant meteor. At that point, do we really (laughs) care that much (laughs) about the value of products? We probably have bigger issues, really. But I do think that people tend to be lulled into a bit of a false sense of security with a one in 200 event being impossible. And as we've just seen through COVID, a lot of companies were facing situations that they would have considered one in 200 or even less likely than that. And I think the reminder there is also that these things reset. It's kind of that game where you're flipping a coin, heads or tails. If you've gotten 20 tails in a row, you still have a 50-50 chance of getting tails again. And so just because we've seen a really extreme situation in the markets in the last couple of years doesn't mean that that won't happen again. Now, I want to get into some concrete examples of typical behavioral biases. And perhaps to set a bit of context, imagine the board of an insurance firm, which is looking to make strategic decisions, sometimes based on imperfect past data, and with a variety of people putting forward ideas to them. So 
typically you'd have, let's say, the underwriter who would have a bullish view of the future. Clearly, they're the entrepreneur. They're the one bringing in the income. They think that they can generate profits. And so they will tend to have a sunnier view of the future than, let's say, the actuary who's all about trying to quantify and manage the risks. So as a board member trying to set that balance and decide how much entrepreneurial risk to take, but also how much of the downside to recognize, what from your experience would be the main types of behavioral biases that those decision makers would typically fall into, either individually or as a group? I'm going to try to avoid using too much jargon here. So I will focus on biases that I think people might have come across before. Though, again, we could talk about probably tens of biases that could play in there. The big three, I think I'd like to touch on there, anchoring, framing, and overconfidence. So the first of those is anchoring. So the first opinion that is thrown out, the first number that's thrown out will anchor the rest of the opinions in the room. So if there is an estimate that's done, that will, even if it is an extreme estimate, it will set the basis for the rest of the discussion. And everyone will tend towards that estimate, even if they're coming from a different place. That can happen with numbers. It can also happen with opinions. So if there's a proposal that's put forward to a board and one person on the board has an extreme view and they speak out first, that can then influence the reactions and the decisions of everyone else in the room. So that has kind of a quantitative and a subjective impact. Framing is how these things are presented. So we're really influenced by how a question is posed, how options are given to us, the order in which they're given to us. So a lot of that falls on who is doing the analysis and how they present the results. We do have a tendency to go for the middle option if we're given three, even if we're pretty well informed. It's just what happens. We tend to pick the thing in the middle, whether that be the middle level of risk, the middle results, the middle profits, we tend to think that that's going to be the best because we're knocking off the ones at the end. And just the last one there is overconfidence. We do tend to be pretty overconfident, especially when we have a lot of specialist knowledge about something and that can influence our analysis, it can influence our decisions, and it can also influence how we present information, which then influences how others interpret and rely on it. Sometimes to the detriment, we tend to miss things that might be obvious to somebody who might not have as much technical knowledge as we do. Maybe if we go through each of those three, because I'm sure there's points we can draw out. Anchoring is, to some extent, inevitable because you're normally presented with last time's results or you remember from a qualitative perspective what we've had last time and therefore the do you anchor to that, even if what you had last time was very judgmental and uncertain in the first place. How do you get around that? How do you reduce the risk of anchoring in that way? I think there's a few things to do. I think challenging how you look at results. I think comparison to last times is important. If that's the first thing you look at, maybe that does anchor you on something that might be very judgmental or subjective or have had quite a lot of risk in it already. So looking at the order in which you take in information, looking at different types of benchmarks, trying to avoid benchmarks generally. I mean, really interestingly, there have been studies that have been done where people are given numbers completely unrelated to what they're doing. So where they're asked to write down a number that might be really, really large or really, really small. And then that actually influences the estimates that they make on a completely unrelated topic. So just watching out for that kind of thing. Giving people different information in different formats can also help. So it might seem overly contrived, but even just kind of swapping around the order of 
pages when it's really analysis heavy and giving different sets of slides to different people to read. Sometimes it doesn't work out very well in practice, but trying to mitigate those impacts by perhaps not setting the same anchor for everyone can be helpful. In terms of decisions, a really good thing is to make sure that the person who kind of has the swing vote or the chair or whoever is kind of the ultimate decision maker to share their opinion last or to have people who do tend to be overly opinionated or who tend to speak the loudest hold back and share their opinions after others have. Did Myers-Briggs last week as part of one of our courses we did here and it was really interesting they split the room into the extroverts and the introverts and got them to kind of have a conversation about like working styles and the kind of facilitator of the meeting afterwards to look back and said extroverts all there talking over each other but we're all very happy to do that we're all kind of just bouncing ideas off no secret I'm an extrovert and the introverts all kind of went around the room and spoke very clearly it was really interesting when we then came back as a group and how best to facilitate a conversation when you've got people of different types in a room it's really hard to work that out the role of the facilitator there is really I think the most important I think that having a diverse group of people who approach problems differently have different lived experiences is absolutely vital and I think that in order for that to be effective you have to have a facilitator who can bring all of those different views together be a calming influence try to avoid or call out biases where they see them and yeah for me I think that that is the most important role those people who kind of sit in the middle of those kind of tests it's interesting Charles you were talking there about kind of different risk appetites for different people, different stakeholders. And one of the other psychometric tests that I've used personally is the risk type compass, which is similar idea to Myers-Briggs, but it really focuses on risk tolerance in particular and people's attitudes to risk, how they approach risky decisions. Because I think that we tend to think about risk as a bad thing. And actually, when we're talking about behavioral risks, I am talking about it in the context of things that might hinder good decision making. But risk in general is not a bad thing. It can also be opportunity. And so you have to have a mix of those personalities and different approaches to risk in order to make sure that you are balancing those opportunities with those risks and really understanding the decisions that you're making. I think that's absolutely true. Within an insurance firm, by virtue of people's different roles, they are naturally going to be more attuned to, let's say, a risk-seeking behavior. The old adage was that if you ask an actuary to be an underwriter, they'll end up writing no business because (laughs) they will just see the downside in every risk. And so nobody would ever be brave enough to write any business. So that's clearly the wrong approach to just focus on the downside risks. But equally, the industry has often gotten into difficulty because of over-optimism and overconfidence on the part of very expert underwriters, but who, with one thing and another, were underweighting how certain real-world risks were coming to bear. A particular example I wanted to touch on, which I think might reflect some of what we've discussed, is changing views on inflation. So it's very clear that in some sense, globally, we are moving from a low inflationary environment to a higher inflationary environment. But I sense a natural reluctance on the part of insurance firms to fully recognize the potential impact that they may have on their finances. And it's not that people are ignoring the issue. It's more that I see quite a lot of effort being put into explaining away the issue by saying we think it's going to be a temporary blip in inflation, which, of course, could happen. But actually, other scenarios are possible. 
and also perhaps just a difficulty in making what would be potentially quite traumatic changes to certain business modeling assumptions, which might invalidate certain business plans, etc. So we're on the cusp, I think, of that change in the inflationary environment, but I see what I perceive as some biases in dealing with it. Just very interesting, in the context of bias, shall your own bias coming through in those statements, and obviously recognizing and understanding it, but it's just interesting how they're all I think you're absolutely right. And I've probably got a more adverse view of it than most because in my day job, I'm calling out the risk of inflation rather than looking at the flip side or the opportunities. We do tend to over or underreact to things and it kind of depends on our own risk tolerance, our own experiences, our role, the kind of lens that we're looking through. So Charles, as you've noted, if you're looking through the lens of risk, looking at the risks of high inflation, you will be focused on that side as opposed to the opportunities. But in general, we do tend to act too late when we're doing well. (laughs) We have this momentum bias. We think that things will continue on the way that they are, and we don't want to move too early and miss out. Often that means that we move too late. So how do firms separate out the bias from what actually the kind of core view is as you say it's a very individual personal decision what kind of steps can firms take to try and remove the bias as much as possible when it comes to these decisions you can't really remove them but i think that the most effective way to mitigate behavioral risk is to understand it i think that understanding what kind of biases individuals face and how that might influence their decisions can help them to challenge themselves, challenge others, build their self-confidence. So I talk a lot to clients about self-censorship. So we tend not to speak up for various reasons. Some of them is just that we just want to be polite. Sometimes we're not particularly confident. Sometimes we don't want to embarrass someone else. But anytime we self-censor and don't challenge someone else, that could be a missed opportunity. Everyone is biased. I talk about these things all the time. I'm not going to pretend that I'm not. I still make silly financial decisions with my own money because it's what we do. We're really bad at looking at our finances as a whole. I have a mortgage and also money and savings. (laughs) (laughs) It is one of those things that you just can't avoid. But I think it's about understanding, building confidence, really doing something like a risk analysis, doing something like effectiveness reviews to really understand where everyone in the group is coming from and what your overall group dynamic is can be really helpful. I want to pick up on the term self-censorship, which I think is quite a powerful concept and definitely in evidence in insurance firms as much as anywhere, and relate that to what people would describe as a healthy risk culture which in an insurance context would normally mean a culture where people are unafraid to raise difficult points, unafraid to deliver what might potentially be bad news, and also people are open to receiving what might be constructive or critical feedback rather than rejecting it. And so both of those things would be essential to a healthy risk culture, but it strikes me that self-censorship is exactly the sort of thing that would interfere with achieving that healthy risk culture. I think it's a good time to bring in this concept of groupthink here as well, which I think is one of the major risks of 
self-censorship is that it can be a big red flag that you have groupthink happening. And groupthink people tend to think of as just being this really negative dynamic within a decision-making group. But actually what really drives it often is a desire for consensus and cohesion. So again, sometimes people self-censor because they're not confident, but sometimes it's that they just want to get along with other people. They're working with a group of people that they enjoy working with. Everybody tends to think about things the same way. And sometimes that challenge just isn't worth it. You might think, oh, well, that number looks a bit odd, or that looks a bit risky, or, oh, I think we've missed something. But I think especially in a virtual world, when people are making decisions fairly quickly, sometimes your internet connection cuts out, sometimes you've missed (laughs) a minute of conversation, sometimes your cat is meowing in the background, and you have to get up and deal with it. (laughs) We tend to think, oh, I must have, maybe I just missed something. And so you don't speak up. And it's, in a lot of ways, people will think of as contributing to healthy risk culture. Oh, I didn't make a big fuss about that small point of detail because I'm using my constructive energy for the big things. And actually, that's where sometimes things happen that are really nonsense. People miss things that are very obvious. This came out when we did some research last year interviewing board members, and they described a very similar scenario to what you've just explained, where in some cases, there's a concern that people just don't raise points because they don't want to potentially look silly or look like they haven't been following or haven't done the reading. Absolutely. And this is where everyone in the room has a role to play. It's interesting as it comes back to something you were saying earlier, Charles, about different stakeholders and that reputation of the actuary (laughs) as no business would ever be written because actuaries are really risk averse. There's also this risk of scapegoating. So if there are different groups that have a reputation for being too risk averse or too risk seeking, they actually end up being silenced or not listened to, or their opinions are overly discounted. And that can be just as dangerous because although you think that you're hearing them, they're not really being given the weight of opinion that they should be. And they might be raising valid red flags and those are being missed because they're seen as overly risk averse, for example. Have you got any good tips or examples for how when dealing with kind of a group, group thinks that maybe it's a board or maybe it's a group of people setting assumptions, kind of ways in which they can help mitigate or manage the bias better in these situations? A good one to do is to look out for red flags. And the red flags that I'll give you are ones that might make it seem like a group is really good at making decisions, unfortunately. So groups that make decisions fairly quickly without a lot of challenge, it feels nice. It feels like they have a really good decision-making process. It's a really good vibe. They dealt with that problem really quickly. That can actually be a really big red flag that you've got some group think <laughs> going on. Groups that tend to be overconfident. So to say, we're really good at this, sometimes that can be a red flag. Sometimes it can be that they are actually pretty good decision makers, but more often than not, it means that maybe there's something that they're missing. And I think that the biggest risk of groupthink really is that you kind of have a false sense that everything is okay. You feel that everyone gets along. And I think that's one that's hard to challenge sometimes. So bringing in external people who can really challenge some things is important, mixing things up, making sure that you have a diverse group of people at the table and that everyone is really included and given equal airtime. How does it work when you 
have someone playing like devil's advocate in these situations because sometimes that can be a way to disrupt things to put out some different ideas is that useful or not really I think devil's advocate can be very useful if it's done right so the risk there is that the devil's advocate is scapegoated so although they're listened to actually the risks that they raise might be listened to less then they might be if someone else raised them, you kind of think, oh, well, they're only raising it because they've been assigned this role of devil's advocate. So they're just throwing out extreme risks. But it can also be very useful. I've found that it works really well if you give someone who has a lot of rapport in the room that role, because the risks that they raise, people tend to listen to. So whether that be someone with a lot of specific technical experience, someone who perhaps the chair, perhaps an advisor, someone who is really listened to and also to mix it up to avoid that kind of scapegoating. So if that role is one that changes and moves around, I think that can be helpful. Are there techniques for helping work colleagues to disagree potentially strongly on work-related issues whilst preserving the warmth and the rapport of their personal relationships? Yeah, this is an interesting concept. This is the concept of kind of relationship conflict versus task conflict. So the idea is that we tend to associate any kind of conflict with relationship conflicts. If you disagree with someone, it's because you are disagreeing with them and it's personal and emotional and people's feelings get hurt and you think that it's something to do with how well you get along with them. If you can really create an environment where constructive criticism and critique and disagreement is embraced. And often I think that that is really down to who's facilitating the conversation and having that really strong facilitator role. Then I think it is possible to split out that relationship conflict and that task conflict and make it a positive, productive thing that when people are disagreeing, they're actually adding value and they're covering all of their bases. So it's something to be encouraged. I think the challenge there is what should leaders within an insurance firm do? What should the board do? What should senior managers do to actually make that kind of environment possible? Talk about it. (laughs) I think it's important to talk about it. I think it's important to do training. I think that, and I know I'm not here with my diversity and inclusion hat on, although that's another hat I wear within LCP. I think creating a diverse and inclusive environment does help support that. And I think it is really key to making sure that you have a robust decision-making group and you have individuals who are able to speak up and are willing to speak up and challenge things, making sure that the group of leaders themselves is diverse and inclusive and welcomes outside opinion. And when you might have a perspective that's not represented, making sure that you're bringing someone in. We tend to think of boards as just the people who are decision-making at the table. But if you recognize that there's a gap in your risk tolerance or a gap in different experiences or perspectives, there's always somebody else that you can bring into the room who can be a good sounding board and help you to maybe see things through a different perspective that the board might not be able to by itself. I think that's quite powerful. And actually, I'm conscious that we're just about out of time, but I would love to chat with you again at some point in the future to unpack that issue of how diversity and inclusion on the one hand and behavioral biases on the other hand can work most effectively together. Absolutely. I love to talk about these things all the time. So I'm always, <laughs> always happy to have a conversation. Great. 
So should we maybe wrap up with a few fun questions to have at the end? Those of you that have listened to the Investment Uncut podcast, so our sister podcast of the investment team, might have already heard the answers to some of these questions, but hopefully we can bring a slightly different perspective this time. So what is the one thing we should know about you that we wouldn't find on your CV, Zoe? I was going to tell you that I had two cats, but they've already made themselves known. (laughs) (laughs) That's not a particularly interesting one. I'm going to go with, I really love playing bridge. It's something that I've kind of done for since I was young with my grandma. And yeah, one of my favorite things to do is play bridge. So there's an interesting one. How did that work during COVID and isolation and all the rest? It didn't because finding bridge players, I think is rare. I've just moved out of London down to Winchester and still kind of meeting people and things around. I did a bit of online bridge, but it's not the same. I think it's the physical cards that I like. (laughs) Any recommendations for something to read, watch or listen to that you've really enjoyed recently? I have recommended this before when I was on Investment Uncut, but I think that it's worth recommending it again because it's one of my favorites. Just like you, I am an avid podcast listener. I listen to a lot of podcasts. And one of my favorites is Hidden Brain. That's presented by Shankar Vedantham. And it's all about behavioral influences on our daily lives, why we think people don't like us, why we make decisions the way that we do, a lot of evolutionary stuff. And he's just really great at explaining it in a very accessible way. So I would definitely recommend that for anyone who's interested in this kind of topic. Amazing. Thanks so much, Zoe. Thanks for having me. That's all we have time for this week on Insurance Uncut. Please join us in two weeks' time for another episode. This podcast was brought to you by LCP. We'd like to thank Nikki Freegard, Deepika Misra, and Matthew Passy for helping to produce this episode. This podcast is for information purposes only and should not be taken as advice. All views expressed by podcast hosts and guests are purely their own opinions and do not represent those of LCP, its clients or affiliates. LCP makes no warranty, guarantee or representation as to the accuracy or sufficiency of the information featured in this podcast.